This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where each week we bring you the conversations and lectures from our public program's live events, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, Boots Riley, the writer and director of Sorry to Bother You and lead singer of The Coup, discusses creativity and activism. He was joined in conversation by local writer Chinaka Hodge for a live recording on September 7, 2018. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. We're going to launch right in. All right. No preambles. I'm going to start with the same question I ask everyone I ever interview. It's a three-part question. You can take any piece of it. Who are your people? Where are they from? And what from their legacy do you inherit and enact? Mm. Right? Just easy. Just lobs out the gate. Well, uh, so uh, one of my people, a lot of people here know, Walter Riley. I don't know if he's in the... And... Uh, his whole, he's from North Carolina, and uh, okay. Okay. See. from Durham, North Carolina, and uh, him and his brother and uh, other folks, they, they have uh, been part of the civil rights movement, been part of more uh, radical movements uh, after that, and uh, they were, their, their father uh, grew tobacco. Mm. And um, so they had a lot of brothers and sisters. And, and uh, so that's that side of it. Um, and, and of course, um, he knew his great-grandmother who had been a slave. Mm. Um, and that they kind of stayed in that same area. Um, then on my mother's side, um, she's from New York, and uh, uh, her father was a, I guess, somewhat known pre-beat poet mm. named, uh, named Lawrence Patterson, and uh, her mother was a, had escaped the Holocaust, and... Um, so they they met in some sort of communist party related sort of stuff, um, as we do in the Bay Area. <laughs> no, this was in New York. No, I'm just saying that's yeah, as we yeah, do yeah, as yeah, well. Yeah. It's familiar for us. Um, and yeah, and so then you obviously you have different. Uh, they're two very different families. Um, my grandfather on her side's family is from. Uh, Syracuse, New York, and there kind of, there's all sorts of mixing, trying to figure out who is, you know, when you're doing ancestry, what's, what's going on. But, uh, yeah, so I, what I take from them, I, I think that, all, and, and my grandmother on my mother's side also was a poet and ended up running Oakland Ensemble Theater uh, in the, 70s and 80s, and uh, they moved here, obviously, 
And um, so, uh, so much of all of those things that I just described are, you know, just right there evident in everything I do. Mm -hmm. um, Did you have any choice but to be an artist or an activist? <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting. Um, none of that stuff was pushed on me, you know. I think also some of it being just the residual of everybody's busy doing things mm -hmm. like, and you know, this is the age where like when I was five and six, you don't, you just go outside and whatever things happen. There's no like, oh, pick somebody up after school and make that sure that, situation. you know, <laughs> that sort of thing. So, um, Politics or art, none of that was pushed on me, but it was just happening around me. And uh, so, therefore, I think I took it on more as, as my own thing, whereas sometimes people can, you know, you have some resistance over what your parents are doing because you want to define yourself. So, yeah. You know my pops as well. Yeah, and I've been known, knowing your father since I was, uh, I don't know, late teenager, and he was always one of those people coming around, like <laughs> that, that always had something very uh, poignant to say that you kind of didn't want to run into him sometimes. Yeah, because, because it, could be a, it could be a long winded poignant or like a task oriented poignant. Yeah. Those are the two options. Yeah, <laughs> yeah like he was going to set you on the right path and. You didn't always want to be set on the right path. Yeah. I feel the same way about your dad. <laughs> Somebody asked me tonight how long I've known you, and my answer was about the same. Like, I've known him since I can remember knowing yeah. people or things yeah. and places, and not from a one-to-one -one introduction or interaction, but just from being yeah. in the same you space. You must have been like this. Yeah, and you were like, like this, <laughs> and then I have a distinct memory of you were out in my neighborhood trick-or-treating, and I was like, Boots Riley, trick-or-treats? And you were like, you were like, no. <laughs> you were like, I'm here because someone else told me that I should be here, and we about to go home. And like, that feels about the, the, the right thing for me. I, I brought up my father because I can pinpoint my first moment of engagement with activism and art uh, circa 99-2000, and he was running for office, and I felt completely disenfranchised from the system. It was just around the same time that Prop 21 mm -hmm. had come into to action, same thing with 209. And I remember that as the moment where I decided not just to be in and around the family business of activism, but to, to drive to and through it. And I wonder if you had that same moment, if there was an event or some sort of watershed moment in your life that made you say, I have to be engaged for freedom on my own terms. Yeah, I mean, I think there are a, a couple things that I, I can't, that, that, that the, the engagement for freedom and then on my own terms. Um, one is I, uh, when I was 14, I went down, I, I um, was helping to uh, organize, well, I was supporting the organizing of some farm workers in the McFarland and Delano area who were making something called the Anti-Racist Farm Workers Union. And um, so there was a summer project where you go and you kind of, you sleep at farm workers' house they wake, that, that are organizing and they wake up at three in the morning to go to the fields and you're, and they, they say, okay, it's your job to uh, make the, you know, to, to make the uh, 
whatever caravan and show up at the fields or the you, you're gonna uh, do the, the the rally you know meaning like you're you're the person that makes the signs you're the person that or and you're the person that makes sure the truck shows up and you're like I'm 14 I don't I, I, they're like well here's just the packet step by step just make it happen if you don't make it happen it's not gonna happen and um, so that that was like a, a summer camp experience, but it also was, uh, it, it, you know, on, on the one hand, it was separated from, because at my time being a teenager, I was very worried about being cool and being, you know, so I wasn't going to like give somebody a flyer for something that just wasn't going to happen. And, 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 but this allowed me to be away from all of that. And then... So that opened me a little bit more. But then I hear um, these folks organizing, you know, that, that, that worked together, you know, in the fields, talking about just in practical ways how they were going to build this organization in the Valley and what the context, what that movement was going to mean in context of the rest of the world and how it was going to affect the rest of the world. And it really felt uh, powerful. It felt like they had a concrete idea of, of what they were doing. And, um, and, and so then the next time was, and, and, and so that got me interested in being involved, but what made me want to combine the music with it and do all of that was um, for that organization that was connected to that Progressive Labor Party, International Committee Against Racism, um, we were doing what a lot of radical organizations end up doing, which is kind of flyering for something general that people can't really connect to. And it was like we were, we were every weekend we'd be in the Sunnydale Projects, mm -hmm. and we'd be passing out flyers that were kind of general, like, fight against racism, join this organization. And we kind of got to know people there, but it wasn't anything for anyone to connect to. But, you know, um, one day, and we would go there like every Sunday, and one day we got there and everybody told us this story about what had happened the day before. And um, the story was that these two, and, and I talk about it some in one of the first songs that, I may call it, I know you, um, these two eight-year-old twins um, got beat down by the police. Um, the police said, they, they were big for their age, but still they're eight years old. And the police said that they were selling drugs. And uh, the mother came out seeing this happen, and they started beating up the mother. Then... Er everybody from the Sunnydale Projects like came and gathered around and there were two cops and they got really scared and they started shooting in the air. And, you know, if you've ever been around a gun going off. And I have. Yeah. There's nothing logical that necessarily happens except for get away from there. Mm -hmm. And so the whole crowd just started running, and they, they continued to take Rossie Hawkins and her two twin sons into the car, 
Now, a week before or two weeks before um, in, the, in San Francisco, there had been a case where the police beat a man up and just drove him around for hours until he died and showed up at the hospital saying, oh, uh, sorry, we, you know, couldn't get here sooner. And so people were afraid of that actually happening because the mother was pretty badly beaten. And um, so anyway, they're running away. And this is the summer of 1989. And the biggest song to most of us, and it was getting actually played on the radio, was a song by Public Enemy called Fight the Power. And um, so then somebody started saying, fight the power, fight the power. And then the crowd started chanting, fight the power. And even though the cops had shot up in the air, they ran back Mm. to the... um, to, to the scene, and whatever happened, something, by the end of it, the police ran away without their car. <laughs> and It's extra special to know that if you know Sunnydale, because it's all uphill. And, uh, and they and, and people in the crowd got Rossi and her sons to the hospital. Um, and... So when I heard that story, and mind you, every, there were so many versions of the story, but what I said is what everybody kind of agreed on. Um, you know, when I heard that, I, I knew that there was an element to what I had already kind of embarked on mm. that was missing. How long between there and the starting of formation? Well, how long between there and you writing your first verse? Um, or had you written your I first verse I had written, before? you know, yeah, my first verses, well, first I had done it for, for plays in high school. Like, we did a... What high school you go to? Oakland High. That's right. I knew that. I just wanted to promote it. <laughs> you went to Oakland High? I did, not, I did not go to Oakland High. I, I went to Berkeley High, but I taught at Oakland High. Yeah, I see you. Yeah. I taught at Berkeley. Berkeley I taught High at, had everything. Y'all have radio stations. And we had radio stations, stations and African-American studies and yeah. police picking us up in paddy wagons my freshman year yeah. and 42 fires and oh, wow. Beehive. Yeah, we used to cut... Uh, we used to not go to Oakland High and just spend all day at Berkeley High. I did that at Oakland High. It's nice. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, okay. So you said you were writing in high school. If, you, if you're from the town, you have to do this, like, high school question as part of the, yeah. as part of the thing. Mm. We, uh, yeah, I, I did that, and it just wasn't, I didn't know whether I could do it or not. And at the time when that incident happened, I knew I wasn't good at it. Mm. I knew you know, the, the, the one thing, one of the things that I got from being in a disciplined organization is, the, is, is feeling like it's okay to critique yourself or critique other people and not totally get depressed about it, mm-hmm. right? And so um, I knew I, I could analyze those things and say I wasn't good at it. And, but, but one of the things that I was learning with like the philosophy of dialectical materialism is that I could make things happen. I could change those things. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just something innate. Right. And so I purposely 
decided to get better. Like, how do I do this? What do these people do? What, how, you Who know, are those these people? Uh, Ice Cube. Uh, and, uh, you know, at the time, who else? Rakim, um, LL, you know, De La Soul. Um, uh, how are you going to tell him what his were? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Tribe wasn't as much of a thing. There was Tribe from the front me. row, yeah. Uh, but, but yeah, so I, so yeah, I, I, like, what are they doing? How do they, you know, and okay, I'm not, how much time do I have to practice before I start sounding like I know what I'm doing? Okay, let me do that, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and what, what is it, and, and also looking at it, because I, you know, I, I was really kind of stealing concepts from things that we would talk about, about um, struggling with folks around ideas and, and kind of placing it into myself gaining skills with art. So like, I knew that it wasn't just about practice, it was about how you practice. It, was, it wasn't like about just being somewhere, rapping to myself, and it was about gaining the experience of how it felt to, and, and how my work uh, hit other people. And what other things, so all of those things. Uh, and, and that, that, so at that, and that was 1989, I put out, we, we put out a, uh, a uh, EP in 1991. I, 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 89 is when I thought about doing it, uh, New Year's Eve going into 91. I was like, oh, I've been talking about it too much and there's still a phone book at the time. I'm gonna <laughs> go through whatever, you know, whoever will open up tomorrow on New Year's Day. Hmm. That's the studio I'm going to, and I use the money that I have from UPS, and uh, went in, and I knew one person with a car, and that was E-Rock. And um, I was like, hey, you wanna go to the studio tomorrow? You should be in the group, too. <laughs> and, um, I mean, <laughs> strategy. <laughs> Political organizer. No, it was more like uh, he already was was giving me the ride, but on the way to the studio, I was like, "You should be in the group too." <laughs> All right, so tell me about the coup. Why does the woman have a gun in the logo? Um, the the actual idea for the image came from a uh, famous uh, photo of an Angolan freedom fighter um, who has a baby on her back while she's fighting because uh, that there was a, <laughs> uh, they, the, uh, there was a, uh, a revolution happening and there was, they had to defend themselves as well. And so um, for me, it symbolized like, this is something that should be far away from violence, right? This is something that where someone shouldn't have to worry about the constant attacks that are happening that, and, um, you know, and, and, but you do. Mm -hmm. Yep. I want to know about the song, uh, Wear Clean Draws. That's my favorite song. <laughs> um, I wonder if you can give me the lyrics to the hook in the first verse, and then I have more questions about that. But y'all might not know the song, so. I can give you the lyrics to the, the hook. hook. yeah. Uh, um, wear Clean wear, Draws. Yeah, Wear Clean Draws. 
every day. Because things may fall the wrong way. You'd be lying there waiting on the ambulance and your underwear, underwear got holes and shit. <laughs> um, and that's a song that I wrote to my then three-year-old daughter, who's now 21. And, and uh, yeah, and... and, and <laughs> For our radio audience, there's a fly who wants yeah. to be in Boots' presence like yeah. the rest of us. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that, that I got started getting to a point where um, I realized that, that, that I could write songs from just that had to do with my personal day-to-day -day, uh, life. And if I was honest about it, then my view of the world would come in to play. And I think maybe that's one of the first songs I did, did that with. Like, I had done that with, done personal things and other things, but, but it was like punchline-y and trying to be funny, like Cars and Shoes or things like that. But this felt personal. And, and before that, I was like, oh, that's not the kind of thing I, mm. I do. I mean, there are, there are other exceptions to the rule, but this was like in a real way. And uh, so, yeah, I, I wrote that um, feeling like I knew it would be a song that she would hear later when she grew up. I love that song. I, so my dad and I have a great relationship. I guess I'm gonna talk about my dad about tonight. My dad and I have a great relationship and it's kind of built around music. And I realized that my dad was stealing my CDs in high school. He's like, literally I go to school in the morning, I come back and my shit would be gone. And I go upstairs <laughs> and look through his things and be in his CD deck at the time. And so I made him a mix. And the first song on my Father's Day mix was that song for him. Oh. And it created a, like a dialogue between us. So I just want to thank you oh, for wow. that. Um, another of my favorite songs has a lyric that I think goes, sneaking in the shit probably always been my hobby, 1985 in the Henry J. Lobby. And then it goes on to talk yeah. about Fresh Fest. But I want to know what it's like as someone who's made a life practice of sneaking in the shit, what it's like to sneak into Hollywood. Mm. I mean, you know, it's, I mean, it, it took a long time. Uh, so, I, but, but I think, you know, if I were to condense some of the lessons, it's that we all um, feel like we're the exception to the rule. We feel like there's, everybody else is making this system happen mm -hmm. but us. So when we talk about the system, we, we, we talk about capitalism. There's, it's, there's all these moving parts and we have nothing to do with it. And there's some truth to that in the sense that everyone feels that way. And the way that uh, an economic system works is we all kind of just keep rolling along. Um, there's a story I like to tell that's not even my story, but um, uh, I have a, another band called Street Sweeper Social Club. And uh, I don't, it's not really in existence anymore, but it's... But shout uh, out to the real fans. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it, it's with Tom Morello from Rage Against the Machine. And, uh, and uh, he told me this story about uh, Michael Moore uh, directing a Rage Against the Machine video. The whole idea was they were going to be on Wall Street and, and, and 
play their song. I forget what it might be, Sleep Now in the Fire. I don't know if anybody knows what video that was they did on Wall Street. And um, the police were going to come. They were going to get shut down. They were just going to film it, and that was going to be the video. So they go to Wall Street, <laughs> and they play their, they play their song, uh, incendiary music, talking about rebellion. And, and they play it one time, nothing happens. They, 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 they play it again, you know, they see some cops talking on their walkie-talkie. They play it again in one of the places nearby, the, they close the, uh, the security doors. And then they're playing it the fourth time, and they hear this chanting. It's going, rah, rah, rah. It's coming from blocks away. And soon, they see from around the corner hundreds of people in suits that, obviously people that work on Wall Street. And they're saying, suits for rage, suits for rage, suits for rage. <laughs> and what it seems to, to be is that Everybody wishes we had a different world. Mm -hmm. And we, we don't necessarily think that we can do anything to change the world that we're in. We don't necessarily think that it's possible to get to the other world. So we, you know, we're like, okay, I'm just gonna do this job. I, I got a Wall Street job, but I wish things were different. Mm -hmm. I got the, you know, because we don't have movements that can do those things. So, that being said, there's a combination of, of things going on with, with getting this movie made. Some people are like, wow, you know, I'm doing all this other work with movies that I can't, I don't really feel in that way, but they're what makes money. Finally, this is something I can feel good about working with, you know. Uh, this is something that I can, I can connect to, and, you know, it's, it, it's something that I can push down the line and get folks involved. Then there are other folks that probably also just don't think art does anything anyway, so you can say whatever, you know. Um, and, and they're not worried about that. Um, and, and the question is just whether it will, uh, whether it will make money or not. And, um, and, and so I think there are those things going on. There's also, um, with people that could be in either of those groups, there's, there are real movements happening in the world right now and in the United States specifically. And like coming off the heels, I mean, it's not off the heels. I mean, that's like seven years ago now, six, seven years ago now, uh, Occupy uh, happening all over the, in places where they said it wasn't going to happen, every single town in the United States. Then you got Black Lives Matter movement happening. All of these things where people are trying to figure out how to change things. And often art will respond to that. In the past, it's been to just kind of, you know, make some sort of caricature of people that want to change the world mm -hmm. and make it seem like uh, 
It's acknowledging that that exists, but kind of advise against it in some way. And, um, it, you know, it, but it can, it can take a couple different paths from here. It can become something that feeds a movement and helps it grow, or it can become something that is just like a pressure valve that lets off some pressure and people feel like, oh, we, we won. We got some movies that are talking about this stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and that is, has to do with a combination of the artists that do it and the movements that are out there, whether the movements are actually are able, you know, like if people come out of seeing my movie and there's nothing for them to plug into, then, um, it, then, then it just becomes talk mm. and, and it, it becomes a chase shirt. It's kind of like what happened when uh, we all were listening to Public Enemy and everybody had the African medallions and all that kind of stuff and people came home and the refrigerator was still um, empty. Mm -hmm. And they were like, okay, this is obviously fantasy. This is not connected to something real. So it's up for movements to, to, to get involved to, to get involved with things and use tactics that people can grab onto and do something. In terms of tactics and radicalism, I just wonder, no right answer, but I wonder if there are any candidates or races, local, state, federal, that you care about, that are of interest to you. Do you endorse people for the Oakland mayoral election? Yeah. Or or is it, is it, in your opinion, a little too far gone to make impact that lasts and puts food in people's refrigerators? Well, I would say this. Um, you know, what I've said about elections before are that, well, first I would like to say that we do need rent control. Mm -hmm. And there is, and that's, that's not only just practical because we don't want the rent to keep going up, but also just in, on an organizing level, like people get moved around so easily, it makes it hard to connect with people and, and build movements. And um, so um, there is a, a measure 10 or a prop 10 um, that uh, is to repeal the Costa-Hawkins Act that um, has... That has made it uh, hard to have rent control. Um, so that's that. But I would say this, that um, we know that where, where power is at has to do with capital, has to do with who has the money. Like, that's something that even, you know, right-wingers won't disagree with, like, People with the money have the power. They won't, they're not going to say they don't. They might say they should have the power, but um, we know that the folks with the money have the power. And the question is, and, and, and the question is, how do you, how do you, uh, how do we have power? Mm -hmm. Well, we're the ones that create the wealth. We're the ones that give them the the the, the power through our labor every day. So if we can make movements that can withhold labor um, 
in order to make those movements, it's going to have to have to do with wages. That's what people are thinking about wages, how they're going to pay the bills and health care, all those things that are tied into that. However, those we can make radical labor movements that not only fight for wages in this group or wages and they can fight for wages across many different industries, things like that, but also they can fight for other things that aren't necessarily just wages. You can shut things down and stop profit. And, and, when, and, if you're, and, and since we know that those with the money have the power, we also know that some of the ways that the, this happens has to do with uh, the folks with the money, you know, controlling politicians, setting agendas, setting, um, you know, the, their whole platforms. So if we can uh, cut the purse, if we can, because we, I don't want to make it seem like it's just about funding, mm -hmm. but if we can, um, if, if, if we can cause uh, compromises from the ruling class by withholding labor, then we're getting straight to the puppeteers and they'll make the puppets do whatever we want. Now, even like very progressive politicians un will not disagree with that for them to do their job, they need a radical or a progressive movement happening. If they're not saying that, then they're, they're misleading us mm -hmm. um, because you know, you can, have, you, you, you can have a politician in there trying to do things, but one, if that's where we're focusing all our energy, then we're not building these other movements. Mm -hmm. And that's basically what it is. There's only so many hours in the day. Like, we barely can, like, go to work and see our kids and do all So it is a question of which one are we going to do. It's not just like, oh, we can do it all. Mm -hmm. You know, like there has to be, there has to be a priority, and we haven't been putting a priority on creating these uh, actual radical movements that have material, um, ha have material ability to to affect change. Um, and when you have those things, when we've seen tastes of those things, we see that we can make pol any politician do what we want. I mean, uh, affirmative action came in under Nixon, and it wasn't just because he was right wing and then just had a soft place in his heart for hiring people of color. It was because there was a movement growing that they were scared of. And the, the movement took place in, in some very material ways. Some of the biggest, uh, you know, the, the, you think about the biggest um, victories that, uh, that uh, the biggest progressive victories that have to do with policy. You know, you have the New Deal and you have uh, the Civil Rights Movement. None of those came because everybody spent all their energy trying to get the right person into office. Matter of fact, they probably wouldn't have come had that been the tactic. But, the, you know, during the 20s and 30s you had, you know, Strikes going on all over, uh, all over the country. You had you had uh, things happening in in with uh, miners in Colorado and Alabama 
in Utah, you had uh, people taking over facilities and, and, and striking and, and occupying factories throughout the Midwest. You had uh, over here on the West Coast, you had longshoremen creating their union uh, and, and, and like actually battling it out with, with tanks coming at them. And um, you, ha you had a million card-carrying communists over the period of the 20s and 30s. And there, and besides that, there were, were things going on all over the world to where there was a fear of a, of a real revolutionary movement growing. And in that milieu is where we got social security, you know, welfare, any of those things. It wasn't because everybody was like, let's, let's spend, you know, a, two years of our time getting everybody get FDR elected. He did it because people forced him to. And, um, and, and so, I, you know, I think that that's my way of looking at it. It's not necessarily either or. Yes, you know, you know if, if you feel like somebody's out there that's going to do something, go ahead and vote for them. But it's not, it's, the, it's, it's, the, it's almost a cop-out to put all your energy into that. Mm. Because that's, that's, just the, that's, that's just what should help out a movement, right? That's where somebody can get in a position to help out a movement that already exists. But if we don't have that movement already, then, um, we're, then, then we are um, shit out of luck. Mm. <laughs> I got it. <laughs> Y'all can clap. And, and this is saying there, there are some really... Uh, great people mm -hmm. that are running for things. I just don't think that that's the, that we can concentrate our power into mm -hmm. that. I agree. And speaking of uh, sneaking into Hollywood, you uh, have snuck. I'm in there, sneaking. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sneaking through the door. You, uh, you, you just wrote uh, for this TV show, Snowpiercer? I'm writing on a TV. I just finished a contract writing for a job uh, called Snowpiercer. It's about the last survivors of humanity. Um, the earth has been destroyed because we're doing that right now. That's not the science fiction part. We destroyed the earth, and the scientists decided to shoot uh, cold making chemical into the air to stop global warming. And it worked too well, and we froze the planet. And so the last survivors of the planet are on a train that moves in perpetual motion. And it's about class and race and gender and privilege and survival. And it stars my good friend David Diggs. And it'll be on TNT right after the basketball finals. <laughs> Which I'm the only person who was in that room who knew anything about basketball. But that's, <laughs> that's how you'll know. It'll be LeBron and Steph again. Shh. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have a question for you that I ask almost every interviewee. I started interviewing folks in, in public um, about two years ago, next door at the Norse, and I asked Gloria Steinem this question, and she completely sidestepped it. So I've just been asking other people since then. All right. Uh, it's the question, uh, there's a longstanding adage that says if the lowest of us are not served, then none of us will be served, and if the poorest of us are taken care of, then the best of us will be taken care of. I think there's problems in that, in that structure anyway. but. If we were to stratify that and we'd say black trans people get the shortest end of this stick, 
what can we do with our privilege? What are you doing with your privilege to extend the privileges of black trans people? I your cousin and my friend up there in the balcony, excited about that one, that's Tassiana. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, it's, it's kind of like how I approach all the different things that kind of get categorized as different problems, which they are different, but they kind of stem from a, a big problem that we have. And, and I think, um, and, and so what I want to do, what I hope to do is make a world where um, w w some of the problems that we're talking about, especially in that, have to do with that people don't have power over their lives, right? So you have to submit to, you know, what, the, what, what those in power say life is supposed to be like because it works, it works easier. It's, uh, it's more streamlined. You can, you know, you, you, you categorize things in, in these particular ways and it's easier to explain how life is supposed to be, this sort of family life that, um, that is modeled around production and, and those sorts of things. So I, I think that we have to make a world in which uh, the people have democratic control over the wealth that we create with our labor. And at that point, whether we're talking about any of these things, all of, all of these things, then it's not just a matter of convincing someone else that this is the way life should be. People can have more, set, if, if we have more control over, you know, the world around us through material means, then, um, then, 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 then we zero in on, on what the problem is a little bit more. So I look at all of those separate problems and I try to figure out, for me, like how do we deal with the, the, the big thing that makes those, those things happen. So, and, and, um, and so that's, that's my main thing because there are a lot of different, there's a lot of, you could imagine, especially once you kind of put yourself out there as someone who wants to be part of changing the world, um, then it kind of ends up becoming like a, okay, well, you're the representative of that idea. Mm. So um, how are you going to do this? How, you know, like whether it's climate change or any of those things. So what, what I do is that, that those, that those uh, groups, trans people, they need to be included in what we're talking about and actively. How, and, and, but what I can do is, hope, is hopefully help to make a movement that changes that, that power relationship in the first place. Clap. You don't have to like ask permission to clap in this room. If you want to clap and respond back or say amen or l'chaim or whatever, whatever it is that moves you, you can say that to me. It's no problem. Uh, I don't want to finish this conversation. I feel like it would have a gaping hole in it if we didn't acknowledge the art and activism inherent in the work of Pam the Functress. And I realize that we're in public and that was your friend, so if you, if you don't want to answer, that's fine. But I could not not ask it. And I want to know, how does what you're doing now honor her work and what do you miss the most? Mm. And you can tell folks who she is if they don't know. 
Uh, Pam the Funkstress was uh, the DJ for the coup, and uh, she also uh, ran a restaurant on the peninsula, and uh, also was everybody's DJ. She was all over the place all the time. And uh, I met her the first time when she was DJing for another group that we stole her from called uh, Funk Lab All-Stars. Still this DJ. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, she was nobody's to be stolen. True enough. But we enticed her. <laughs> and, um, and, and uh, yeah, so I don't know. I, I don't, uh, you know, I don't not want to answer the question, but I don't know if I am, <laughs> you know? Fair. Uh, uh, but I think that she really, she really cared about the funk. Mm. And, um, you know, that's definitely part of what I'm doing and, and, and aesthetically. And, uh, yeah, and uh, I, think, I think she's out there. She was, the, she was probably the first real, like, skilled very skilled uh, battle DJ mm -hmm. out there. And uh, she also, um, she was so good that, and, and she did it because she wanted to be in this community of DJs that were mainly dudes. Mm -hmm. And as she got more, as, as she would beat some of them in battles publicly, they started not liking her at the time. and really you know and so as so her ascendance in that kind of realm made her more sad and uh she stopped doing that mm. and uh so i think uh you know and 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 um yeah i don't i don't really have an answer for that thank you thank you for sharing i'm gonna give it a second too Okay, so earlier you talked about critique, and you wrote a critique of a film. <laughs> I'm gonna get into it, because I feel like everyone's asked you that question. But I do, I do wonder, what's at stake in terms of black cinema right now? Why is cultural critique, cultural critique of particular importance? And more specifically, why is it important to engage other black male directors right now? Mm. I don't, I don't know if it's more important to engage other black male directors as it is to engage anyone, but I think uh, that art is communication, conversation, right? Um, and that's what we're doing. Art, my art is a critique in the first place. Mm -hmm. So it's fair for someone to critique me, but it's also, you know, it's part of an ongoing conversation. After a while, you're like, okay, well, I'm going to talk in this other way, you know, because actually I'm doing this art because at a certain point I, I get bored of hearing speeches or, re, you know, I want to do something else. So, but I think it's, it's in, you know, all of these things that we're doing are ideas. Mm. They're, 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 they're not, they don't mean nothing. And so... And as movements are being built, these pieces of art that we make really change what people choose to do with their life. Mm -hmm. They change what people 
think is possible. They change what people think their world was and is. And so, to me, it's, it's very important for all of that to be in, in conversation. And, uh, and I don't know, I don't think it's anything new. Mm-hmm. I think people have always done that, you know. Um, a lot of great writers that, you know, you, you see Langston Hughes and Zora Neale Hurston going back and forth. Honestly, that, I couldn't believe it made, like, national news like that. I yeah. was like, rapper critiques other person who makes art. That's what we do. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> how is this a story? Yeah. It, uh, and, you know. And so, it got turned from critique to attack so quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I mean, it's, uh, you know, that's the way certain news agencies are set up yeah. is just to get the click in. Um, but, yeah, th- you know, I... I, I I've always done that, so I'm not going to stop doing that now, you know. Fair enough. Being real, still real. Yeah. Uh, all right, let's talk about this movie. Sorry to bother you. You guys seen it? In my notes here, it says, pause for raucous applause. So you guys are doing it. Uh, what is the value in discomfort? What is the purpose of making art that upsets your viewers, bothers them as a baseline? Mm. I think um, that, yeah, I want people to be engaged with the art that I make. I want it to make people feel a certain way. I, I want it to, them to feel it viscerally because then the ideas that are talked about um, become more important. Um, also, I, I think, like, even just as, as an organizer, not saying that I am, that, that gets tossed around, I'm not doing that right now, but what I understood f- from being an organizer at one point is um, that what organizers are effect- or should, should be trying to do is bring people through experiences that allow them to understand the way things are working, allow them to understand the way things are working so that they can, um, they can engage with the world and, and, and help to change things. And, and so, you know, that's what a strike is. It's like, not only are you um, showing how the world works, people are, people are engaging in changing their own lives and, and gaining an understanding of that. Right? Um, uh, when I, in the 90s, we had an organization called the Young Comrades, but it was named after a, a South African organization from the early 80s called the Young Comrades. There were a bunch of kids that um, came together after the Soweto um, uprisings. And um, I saw some clip on PBS, and I... I haven't been able to find it, but I swear I saw it. And um, they were interviewing somebody that must have been 10, 11 years old. And they were talking about trade. They were talking about the, you know, uh, they, they knew uh, about policies that Reagan was, ha- had going on. They knew all of these things, and it was because they were 
involved in a movement every day. They, they, they felt that they had the power to change what was around them. And so they gained, they engaged with the world in a different way. And so with, 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 with my art, I don't want people to just kind of sit back and objectively be like, oh, I, you know, I empathize with that character and they're going through that and they're doing that. I want people to go through similar things mm. as the characters are going through. I went through some things. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and that way, and, and, and so, and for it to not be, you know, so many things, there's, there's a, there are, when making art, there's all sorts of rules that some of them are very good. They're, they're, they're like, I heard that if you rhyme, people will like your rap, you know, that sort of thing, right? You don't have to anymore. Yeah. Um, but those, those sorts of things. But then some rules end up just becoming a safety net, hmm. like where you don't know if what you're doing is good but you just know, okay, I did meet those rules, I followed them, so it must be good. Mm -hmm. And that's, that becomes the gauge, and then that's when it starts getting boring, mm. to me, at least. You do something so fucking cool in this movie, I'm not supposed to cuss on the radio, so freaking cool in this movie. I'm such a film nerd, so maybe no one else caught it or cares about it, but often we hear sound pre-lapped from the next scene into the first. So you hear a line that a character's not saying on screen, it's embodied in the next scene, and you understand that, that it belonged to the scene before. You do it with image in this film, and I don't know why I never thought of it myself. <laughs> I'm angry about that part, but there's a moment in the film where he says, hey bro, why are you stuffing all those fries into your mouth? He's still in the call center, he turns to no one, and then the next scene starts and he's in the layover and they're stuffing fries into their mouth. Mm -hmm. Thank you for doing something that changed the way I look at film, just by not following a rule. What other things did you do in the film that I should be looking for like that? Oh, man. Uh, I'm trying to think. That was like, actually, I, you know, with every scene, it was always like, even while we're shooting, it's like, okay, what, what am I missing here? How can we do this. And that was just the idea I had, because I was like, I didn't know if it was going to work. So I was like... It feels like a punchline in one this. of your reps. It feels like, you know, like the way you feel after you get the yeah. punchline? That's how I felt when I saw it. I was yeah. like, ah! Lit up on the inside. And, and you, we used to do that in, in our songs mm -hmm. and stuff like that, too. So it kind of is like just trying to make the energy go over. But I, I, did we do that in some other place? You know, like... It's hard for me to look at the film yeah. anymore in the sense that I'm not, you know, I have to see it with the crowd because I, I'm not seeing it otherwise. And um, so, yeah, there, we tried to do that with every element we could do it with, you know, like everything from, you know, uh, trying to express a story through uh, Lakeith's posture mm -hmm. um, to um, there were things happening with background actors that mm -hmm. kind of told a separate story. That's kind of like a, there's a children's book author, Jan Brett. Mm -hmm. And if you look in the- In the margins. In the margins, the yeah, yeah, there's yeah. this other thing. Um, and so all of, all of those, and it's also like Richard Scarry mm -hmm. will have like all those things. So um, yeah, that was it, was like, what other thing can I put in here? Mm -hmm. Because it was, for me, 
Um, I wanted to make literature without sitting there and mm -hmm. writing um, yeah. 600 pages. And, and, and some of the folks that I really like in literature add all those details, whether it's like Toni Morrison or Gabriel Garcia Marquez or Michael Ondaatje, like their, their sentences are full of these mm -hmm. things. And so I wanted to, we had this, and the, the, we had this idea of beautiful clutter. Mm -hmm. And uh, that, so I wanted, a lot of times when like, especially in art, like with, with our music, a lot of times, because we kind of became a representative for Oakland, people really took that literally, like, you are our music, so here's what you need to do mm -hmm. on your song, mm -hmm. you know. That sounded like the Oakland I yeah, know. Yeah, like, like, they'll be like, man, why are you doing, you need to come with some clean beats, you know, they need to be <laughs> clean, like, you know, like, people need to see that we're doing this, so <laughs> there's this, there's this, when, when, when people get do their projects sometimes to show, whether it's music or film, it's all about, oh, I got the cleanest camera, I got this and this, you know, um, or there's this sparseness that is supposed to represent something more stable, right? And you, you see that in music videos, like there's the white wall and the person standing in front of it. And it's, a, it's an aesthetic that's there, but it's kind of come to mean like, it's all together and I've got the money for this. And, mm -hmm. um, and you see that like in, in the aesthetics of cars and things like that, there's like just this slick line mm -hmm. and not much detail in there. And um, so I wanted something that felt more like, uh, like Jacob Lawrence mm -hmm. or um, some stupid. other like, yeah, yeah, some other kind of like um, collage mm -hmm. that was going on. And at one point, I had seen, you know, shortly after I written this first version of the script, I had seen a picture of Bob Marley's room. Um, and it was on this documentary about, I forget, the producer that worked with him in the 60s is still around. Uh, huh? Lee Scratch Perry, yeah. And he had uh, preserved... Uh, he had preserved Bob Marley's room mm. and kept it as it is. And so I saw a picture of that, and I was like, oh, that's Cassius's room. Mm. And it kind of sparked on this idea of that I wanted the film to feel messy. Mm -hmm. I wanted it to have, that that was part of human existence that I didn't really see a lot in mm. film. Not just production design messy, but like the way it went from this to that and um, the story and all of these, these details that kind of feel mess, but for it to work, I had to make it mean something. So all those things on the wall in his room mean something. All the, you know, like it, maybe people won't get it, but they, yeah. but, but, but it has. Some. So, and that sloppiness and stuff, that's very much connected to the funk, so. Yes. Yeah. That's real. It does in many ways feel like a visual representation of Oakland funk. From like, 
you know, like uh, the dancer you move past, I dummy, mm -hmm. when you're moving into the layover, Eric Arnold's mentioned there, like <laughs> the earrings themselves, like it, it feels like the Oakland I know. And I won't say that's true about all the films that are coming, about, coming out about Oakland right now without casting too much shade, but I feel like this one, it forefronts uh, an Oakland that I know well. So thank you for doing that. I have questions and we don't have a lot of time, so I'm just throwing them at you. Um, I want to ask about Black Eros in the film. I really appreciated that we saw more black intimate scenes between Cash and Detroit than any other film I've ever seen. Mm, um, I didn't know that. It, it changed me. It changed me because I crave it, and we don't see it. We don't see black people being intimate with each other um, and having political, political conversations while they're intimate, right? <laughs> Which is something that happens. Like, every conversation I'm having while I'm intimate is a political act. Mm -hmm. um, for real. <laughs> Ask. And... Um, <laughs> I also want to know, uh, how do you engage with how little clothing Tessa wears through the film as a father, as a, someone who has some feminist values? And uh, I wonder if it's imbalanced to some of the nudity we see black male characters inhabit at the end of the film, but I'm not going to do no spoilers. Mm. Yeah. Um, are you talking about the, I mean, I mean, are you talking about the, the her art scene? The art as scene as is the culmination of it, but the first scene I think we see Detroit is yeah, in bed, yeah. no under, I mean, no pants on, underwear only. Yeah. We see her a number of times through the film in her. And so what I tried to balance it out with was Lakeith's ass. Mm -hmm. But. <laughs> and thank but, you for that. But the, the version that we got, the version that worked for the timing went a little bit faster than the other versions, but it was like I had to, when we're cutting that scene, like, okay, this one, there are people that will appreciate this scene more because it takes more time getting into the bed, but uh, <laughs> it kind of made other things drag. So it was one of those sorts of things. But, yeah, there, uh, the, so that was, yeah, that was how... I tried to balance that out with, with Lakeith, mm -hmm. and then I tried to balance that scene out with Lakeith's mm -hmm. scene. Um, and yeah, there are, um, I guess we can say without saying what it is, there's, there are other genitalia in the movie. Yeah. Um, and... Don't laugh at me making a face. And, and uh, yeah, so I think that's, that's where that was and yeah and we and with the with the art scene we did we we, we talked about it o originally that was actually going to be a full frontal nudity scene mm -hmm. and um there was also a scene that was Lakeith full frontal nudity mm -hmm. and um something had to get cut at some point and before we shot that before we shot that um there was a thing of things had to get cut, and I wanted, I wanted Lakeith to have that full frontal nudity scene only because it was at a point that we needed him to feel vulnerable. Uh, neither scene is directly sexual, but you know. Mm -hmm. um, and, but just after shooting for a couple weeks, I, it was clear that when I focused in on his face, he already felt vulnerable. Yeah. And, um, he, and, and, you know, so that was a thing that it was an interrogation scene where he was standing full frontally nude. And so uh, we cut that, but then, so then I 
said to Tessa, like, there's no way we can, we shouldn't, we can't have you be full frontal nudity since we're not going to do Lakeith. And so we came up with, like, in the last, because we made that decision right before we did that. So we came up at the last minute with those gloves. And, um, big, but because it's still for that scene, she needed to be vulnerable. Yeah, I think it's effective, and I think it's more effective than full frontal, actually, because I'll remember yeah. that image in a way that I don't. It yeah. triggered for me, I was only supposed to ask one more question. I'm going to ask this one. What I did was I went out to all the black male cinematic peers of yours mm -hmm. that I can think of, and I asked them if they had a question about the film. Ryan said he dug the film, no questions. Uh, Donald, Kugler, <laughs> Donald Glover said, let me think on it. Um, Terrence Nance, who directed uh, An Oversimplification of Her Beauty, and uh, he's the director of HBO's Random Act of Flyness. It's worth seeing. He's an absurdist filmmaker. And uh, he has questions, he's also anti-capitalist, and he has questions Anaka about- knows everybody. I do know everybody, that's my yeah, Oakland job. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. that's the first one they gave me. Uh, in short, his question is, as an anti-capitalist working within a capitalist framework, particularly in the film industry, can you dismantle master's house with the master's tools? Can you forefront yourself and do the work it takes to sell tickets to the show, tickets to the cinema, uh, get a room full of people and not engage capitalism? Or basically, how do you, how do you make amends with the, yeah. the difficulty there? Well, no one person can dismantle capitalism. And uh, what can dismantle capitalism is uh, Something that, uh, uh, something that starts with a mass radical labor movement that can have general strikes that turns into a revolution. That's what dismantles capitalism. Uh, however, what I can do is help, help to build that movement, help to provide tools to organizers that might want to build that movement um, and help provide understanding that makes the ground fertile for folks that are building that movement. Um, and so, yeah, it's, uh, I, you know, I, I, I think that there is a tendency to, um, in spaces that are radical and progressive to be like, Let's make this other world that capitalism doesn't touch. Hmm. But it's, it's, that, that's false. Capitalism is still going. It's touching you. It's touching the world. You've just withdrawn from it. Mm -hmm. And um, I've been in spaces that are supposed, you know, we've had albums out on major labels. We've had albums out on indie labels. It's all capitalism. The indies are just little capitalists that are stealing stuff from you, too. <laughs> you know? Like, it's a way to not engage in the problem. The problem is the exploitation of labor. And that is the key to, you know, it doesn't fix everything, but it's the key to being able to then fixing everything else. And so, I never, you know, it, and, and there are things that we can do to survive, like maybe making a, a collective uh, business is a way to create jobs in a place that don't, doesn't have jobs. I don't know. So that, that's something that I see, but it's not, it's not 
what is going to dismantle capitalism. I think that what would dismantle capitalism is having, you know, the, the workers fight for uh, more pay, less hours, and therefore more jobs at that place, um, at, at a different place. Um, and, and uh, you know, so, so I, yeah, I, I think that that sort of, and there, there, is a, there is a sort of tendency to be like, I don't want to be connected to this capitalist thing. I want to be connected to this thing. And therefore, because it's smaller, it's not capitalist or it's somehow. So, and I think that that's more connected to a punk aesthetic than it is to a politic. Mm. You know, I think like, you know, how uh, fans of different punk bands will get mad when more people find out about that band. <laughs> You know, and 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 it's something that 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 is not that, that, that where that it has to do with a rebellion that's an aesthetic as opposed to a real thing. You know, I have to have this talk with uh, my 17-year-old. Like, there's an idea that rebellion is simply, you know, fuck you or staying awake. You know, yeah, that that it's that it has to that 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 somehow it's rebellious to like, not like anybody else around you. <laughs> and really, and I have to explain that that is actually, you know, that's, that's, that's is because it doesn't, it, it, it doesn't have a class analysis, because it doesn't aim, that doesn't aim to organize people on the, on the basis of the contradiction of the system that we're living in, that actually helps the system out. That actually, you know, it, it just makes these little clicks. Uh, and, and, and it's not even just done in the punk world. It's done in worlds that are, that are that, that where people feel like they are actually working to change the world, that people feel that they are actually radical. And it happens in, you know, like uh, revolutionary organizations that, that, you know, if someone is not dressed in this certain way, like it gets down to even that. So I, I think uh, my point is I want to get these ideas out in the biggest way possible. And the thing that people are engaged in is uh, something that, that where they are going to theaters. They are watching it on HBO, Netflix, whatever, they are doing all these things. I want to get to them where they are. I don't want to make something and feel good about not, not getting there. I mean, you know, uh, Marx himself sold books. Mm. That's how most of us know about it. Mm. <laughs> that is a great place to segue. We are now going to hear your questions. Where did the name Boots come from? I could answer that, but okay. I mean, I wasn't going to ask you that. Yeah. They asked you. Uh, I was wearing boots at the wrong time in the wrong place. I'll try to do a, a simple story of it. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah wear, wearing some boots like this, actually. And um, it, for uh, a formal occasion at grad, what was grad night at Disneyland. And 
It was a name that I didn't answer to for like three years. <laughs> until I was actually, till that day, that New Year's Day, of going to the studio and being like, okay, I need, at least, you know, it, it, the way I got the name was in a situation where every high school in the East Bay from Pinole to, to uh, Fremont was there and heard it. I just don't want to, you know, people can look up that story, but, you know, I tell that a lot. But anyway, so I, I wouldn't, people would call me Boots. They'd see me on the street, yell out of their car, Boots, and I wouldn't answer. And um, so when I started making music that day, I was like, okay, there's hundreds of people that know, will know who I am <laughs> if I say I'm Boots. And uh, that was all kinds of nicknames I, I hate. <laughs> and it's hard to shake a nickname you hate. Like, yeah. once it's out there, you can't get this shit back in the bottle. Um, someone wants to know, can you talk about the development of the soundtrack for Sorry to Bother You? Which is predominantly coup songs, if not entirely coup songs, right? So there are two musical worlds in, uh, in the movie. There is uh, the soundtrack, which is what the characters can hear in that world, whether it's in the, in the bar, in the car, whatever. It's those, it happens in a physical space that, that those characters can hear. Um, and that's all coup songs. Um, and we have get some guests on there um, as well. And then there is um, the score, which is the stuff the characters can't hear. And that's all done by Tune Yards, mm -hmm. Meryl Garbus and Nate Brenner. And uh, so, and, 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 and there were a couple times when we broke the rules on mm -hmm. that. There's a song, oh yeah, all right, O-Y-A-H-Y-T-T. Um, that they can't hear, and then there's one other thing that Meryl and them do. Um, so, yeah, I, I had made an album right after I wrote the, right after I wrote the, the screenplay. I made an album in 2012 uh, called Sorry to Bother You. And uh, it was, the idea was to get some notoriety for the, for the uh, film. That didn't work. And um, and so by the time we were were making the movie, um, that music was old and and also um, wasn't going to fit the aesthetic as it had grown to be. So uh, we made you know made new music for it. We got on we got a who we got on there. We got Killer Mike, Janelle Monae, uh, Lakeith is rapping on there. Um, uh, Tune Yards is on there, uh, E-40, so, so yeah, uh, that was, and we, we, we made it while I was editing the movie, hmm. except for, we had a f some instrumentals beforehand, because I knew that I was going to want, like, the, the dancers to be dancing to the actual song that were, yeah. was on there, you know. Uh, this question I'd really like to ask, but it's got a spoiler for the film in it, not going to do it. I appreciate it. I hear it. This is a great question. Just not going to happen. Someone wants to know, where did you hone your storytelling skills? Was it in school or a writing circle or an individual mentor? Mm. Uh, I, it was kind of just in the fire. The writing, uh, writing a play for the school play and then writing, uh, doing that also for uh, 
place called Black Repertory Theater. Yes, Black Rep. Yeah. How about every Saturday there, just okay. for all the 90s? And so I, I was there when it, it's now in this big space, and it used to be in the storefront where Alchemy uh, Coffee is right now. And that's when, when I was there, like you could fit 40 people in there. And, and because of that, that's probably why I ended up going to film school, because I was like, oh, I'm gonna do plays where only 40 people at a time are coming. Um, I'd rather do films. And um, yeah, so it was like in, in the fire, uh, then, you know, like I said, just deciding to, to write raps, write songs, and play them to people and um, like try to get their honest feedback because you always have the friends that will like everything you do and then you have the friends that will hate everything you do. <laughs> and it's good to like kind of get both of those things and then ask them questions about why do you like it or why do you hate it or what, what part do you hate the most? You hate that more than that other part, you know. That I do know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so that sort of back and forth. I, uh, but uh, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't, I, I, the mentors I had, they didn't know they were my mentors. Hmm. Here's a good question to, to piggyback on that. Who pushes you forward in your practice? In my art, it's like, again, like people that wouldn't know they push me forward. I like look for stuff that like makes me, you know, wish I had done it or something mm -hmm. like that, you know? Um, Can you remember the last thing you saw that made you wish you had done it? Because for me, it was sorry to bother you in that <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I, you know, I'm sure it exists. I, I cannot, I cannot think of I'll it. I'll put you right on now. the spot with that yeah. one. Um, but yeah, the, the, I, I look for all, all of these, you know, artists that are like, kind of operating on a high frequency and getting stuff done, you know, um, uh, and, 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 and just kind of making stuff happen. So I, I, I can't say who they are, I don't, don't know, but that's, that's where that is. I, and, and I think they're, as far as in general, uh, you know, I, 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 I'm, kind of like Cassius in the movie in my head, like at a race with death, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Like um, just put, wanting to engage with the world is pushing me mm. at this time. Do you feel like you're winning the race? Uh, I don't think anybody can. Mm. It will outrun us eventually. Yeah. What is one or a few of your favorite books and or what are you reading now? Mm. Um, right now I'm reading a lot of scripts because, uh, people are yeah. sending them to me. Uh, are you reading the whole script or are you reading like the first 30 pages in the last? <laughs> you don't have to answer. That's just, a, that's, you know. Um, yeah, the, I, I, I've, I haven't been reading a lot of fiction. I've been reading, you know, books about directors and what they're doing and other art. I was just reading this book about the, uh, that, that manif the filmmakers in New York with the manifesto, uh, Zed, 
Nick Zed or something like that. Um, so I was reading, yeah, I've been just kind of reading that sort of stuff. I haven't been reading any fiction lately. Someone else wants to know, what do you wish someone had told you about making art? Mm. I, uh, that, that there isn't a right way. Hmm. You know, that there isn't, that there isn't, uh, yeah, that there isn't a right way. I, okay, I do say that, I, I, but I think you have, I, I heard someone say this, I'm gonna mess up the, the quote, um, uh, but there's, there was someone uh, just talking about trying to change the Catholic Church and they were like, you know, you have to be of it to mm. go against it. And I think, had, I wouldn't have learned as much had I not tried had I not been trying to speak in that language, mm -hmm. trying to speak in the language of, of what people are doing, I, I, I wouldn't have learned as much had I not come to it on my own. Mm -hmm. Had I made a movie right after I, when I was, you know, 21 in the middle of film school, it would have been a lot like, hopefully at best, like, you know, a Spike Lee movie or whatever I, Thought, you know, like it wouldn't, I wouldn't have learned the lessons of, you know, 20 years of making art mm -hmm. that got me to that place. Like mm -hmm. somebody could have told me this stuff, but it, it wouldn't have worked. Mm -hmm. So I think maybe it's just to, to, to keep doing it and to make sure that you are uh, engaging people with your art. This last question says, how do we, and then it crossed out we, and put a little carrot, and on the top it says you, support the next generation of artists of color coming out of our community? Yeah, I think, um, well, one, I can, right now, there's a lot of interest in it. So there's a lot of interest in, I mean, I've met with a lot of studios, they're like, oh, we got a, we got a TV show, it's set in, uh, it's set in Jingletown. We got a movie that's happening in the Lower Bottoms. You know, all that sort of stuff. So that there's interest in those things happening. And what I am hoping to uh, be part of creating is um, sort of a production collective that, on the one hand, um, gathers together people making radical art. Um, but also um, helps people learn how to uh, make films and do that stuff. And there's a lot of people already doing that work, so it's, it's really more of a connecting with folks that, that uh, can do that and, and helping to support that. And just like everything, I mean, when w the reason that I left film school is because uh, MC Hammer, Too Short, and Digital Underground came out and sold all these albums in Oakland. And, you know, record labels are, are just like any other company. They don't really like art at all. And so they're just like, you know, oh, this person had a green jacket on. Uh, we need, you know, and they sold this many albums. We need people with green jackets on. So everybody was like, Oakland. 
Um, let me, you know, we all have to have a group from Oakland. So that's how we got onto that because they had to have a group from Oakland. We were a group from Oakland. We had posters up everywhere. So you had, you know, um, so we got on onto that. That is happening to a certain extent right now um, with the Bay Area and with uh, people of color doing films. It's not only because of that, it's because, like I was saying before, trying to answer movements that are happening. And so, um, you know, I'm trying to, the, the real answer is I'm trying to figure that out in how to do that in concrete ways and how to, because uh, people actually have been making movies in Oakland for a long time. And a lot of them were terrible. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them were great. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, and definitely. Yeah, I'm just, you know. And, and what, but what I'm saying is, is that the, the shame is that there hasn't been a community that could help people that are, you know, there's a lot of people that are like, I got a camera, I'm gonna make it mm-hmm. happen. And, and there's nobody around them to, to, to help them, like, you know, look at how to do it. Right, mm-hmm. and and that's not always necessarily a bad thing, mm-hmm. but um, there's there there could be more of a community around that that could could uh, help that energy mm-hmm. out there that's already there, um, and and there 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 are other filmmakers that came out this year from Oakland that aren't being talked about. I, I like Nilja. Yeah. Yeah. Also, um, y'all should go see Jen. It's a film. It's a, a black female writer director out of Oakland that made a movie called Jen Nilja Moomin. Is mm-hmm. her name? Moomin, I think. Yeah. There's been films being made, and I think right now it's it's the time for people to kind of uh, for there to be almost like salons and stuff mm-hmm. like that for artists to talk about how to do these things, uh, and not just on a technical way, but like thinking about uh, the art critically. Yeah and uh, how it connects to the community. My Tattoo Fest is coming up this October, and I feel like my tattoo is a great way to convene, you know, storytellers of all kinds, but particularly filmmakers as well, and mm-hmm. forefront folks who are making smaller budget films and other films at Forefront Oakland too. So yeah, that's worth checking. That would be great. I feel like our time is short, so I have two, two more questions for you. The first is, people who don't call you Boots, what do they call you? And can I call you that? Uh, my father calls me Boots now, so everybody, everybody calls me Boots. And the next, except for my kids, maybe. Yeah, your kids call you Baba. No, they just call me Daddy. Or, hey, <laughs> or I'm all out. <laughs> uh, my last question is the most obnoxious, but I think what everyone's asking themselves is, "What are you doing next, Boots?" Um, I have a. Uh, I have a couple deals in place to uh, one for a feature film to do whatever I want and one for a television show to do whatever I want. Follow-up questions from Anaka trying to make it in the industry. (laughs) This uh, show that's, uh, you can do whatever you want, hour or half hour or 15? Uh, That's what I'm trying to figure out. There, that's it, it's uh, it's not going to be 15 minutes. It's going to be at, at least a half hour to an hour. And my thing was, I was like, I don't, I, I don't know the form of TV, mm-hmm. and I don't 
So I, I was questioning why they wanted to do the deal with me. Um, <laughs> and it's this dude, Michael Ellenberg, who brought uh, Game of Thrones to HBO. And uh, he was just like, that's, that's why we want you. Because you don't, <laughs> Cause, cause you don't yeah. yeah, you don't. Uh, well, you know, I don't know that much about it. Just if you need. <laughs> well, yeah, I am going to. <laughs> Yeah, that's the thing, is I'm writing the pilot, but I, I'm not going to be on for the whole series, so okay, we, will need, well, we will need we'll talk offline. Your, your help. <laughs> and that makes me, me saying that makes me think about the other question that the person said, what would I say to, a, to an artist? And this kind of talks about those two things that I said, in a, is that uh, nobody knows what they're doing. We all, you know, even when we're like, here's the thing on page 30, you're supposed to do this, or the, it should be this fast for people to dance. It's, everybody's just trying to figure it out. And it's all changing. It's all, you know, it, 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 even the folks that are masters at what they do, they're, you know, they're still on, if they're masters, they're probably still on edge trying to make sure they're doing the right thing. And once you realize that, that everybody's trying to figure it out, that doesn't mean people aren't good at what they do, but nobody knows the answers, you know? And I, I don't want to sound like Kanye, but they... What about like 2000 Kanye? <laughs> In terms of just sound, just oral experience. Uh, yeah. We're all trying to figure that out, and, and it's something um, that that ha you know that that we need a little bit of in in social movements as well, is to realize that there are some things that we know about how the world works, but how we're going to get people involved in things is still something that we're we're figuring out, and it's always going to be this new thing. Like, wow, nobody thought of that. It hit everybody by surprise. Mm -hmm. And that's the same thing that's with art and social movements is, you know, we got to realize some of these rules are just hints at, um, and, 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 and um, we, have to const we have to stay on top of things and keep creating and keep uh, reflecting and analyzing how we're doing things. I think that's the perfect place to start. Boots Riley, thank you for bothering us. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at ciis.edu slash podcast.